This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Bill Southworth covers the opening of a long-awaited Dunedin memorial to conscientious objectors, and Gregor Campbell looks at a hair-raising exploration of the Clutha River in the 19th century. Regular listeners may recall the past coverage we've given to famous Dunedin pacifist and conscientious objector Archibald Baxter. Late last month, the Peace Garden and statue were unveiled at the intersection of Albany and George Streets in honour of Baxter and his fellow Kiwis who'd refused to kill their fellow man in the First and Second World Wars. Bill Southworth covered the opening. The Peace Garden and Memorial for Archibald Baxter and his fellow pacifists has been a long time coming. It was proposed years ago, but suggestions from various sites were knocked back in an atmosphere clouded by objections from elements within the Returned Services Association. The new monument has an abstract sculpture that looks like a bent post. The post is meant to represent the crucifixion stake Baxter was tied to in the front line on no man's land in the Western Front during World War I. It is bent, but not broken, like the spirit of the famous pacifist. He later recorded his arrest in Dunedin and his being taken as a prisoner to the battlefields in Europe in his book called We Shall Not Cease. At the unveiling ceremony, his granddaughter, Catherine Baxter, quoted directly from the book. Many years before the war of 1914-18, I had reached the point of view that war, all war, was wrong, futile and destructive alike to the victor and vanquished. Those are the opening words of We Will Not Cease, our grandfather Archibald Baxter's account of his experiences of steadfastly with his brothers and fellow objectors and friends taking a stand against the utmost power of the military machine and the barbarism of a war in which so many young men of his generation and the people who lived in the places where that war was played out were to lose their lives. For our family, those words and many other passages from the book are imprinted in our minds, part of our family story, one that has been retold in generations, inspiring ongoing commitment to working within our own communities in the small human interactions of daily life and further afield when we can to achieve a world free of violence and conflict, a world at peace. There are places and ceremonies throughout Aotearoa where we can gather to respect, remember and grieve for those who went off to fight with great courage in far off places, those who lost their lives or returned damaged from war, and we remember them. But the messages and comments sent to the Trust over the past few months, many very touching, tell us that there are families of conscientious objectors who have for some time been seeking a place where their heroes of descent and their families can be appreciated and respected, remembered and honoured as people of great principle. Professor Kevin Clements, Chairman of the Archibald Baxter Memorial Trust, said the memorial was complementary to the Fallen Soldiers Memorial high on the Otago Peninsula. He went on to describe what happened to Baxter when tied to a post on the front line for what was known as Field Punishment Number 1. This punishment was known by soldiers as the Crucifixion. It would be considered state-sponsored torture today and it was adopted by the British Army after flogging was abolished. 
to abolish flogging and then decide to crucify uh, some of your defaulters and conscience objectors for a while. They were tied to poles such as this, erected close to front lines. They were tied in such a way that it caused blood to flow to their feet, and after a few minutes it generated excruciating pain in the legs and back. Baxter and the others had to endure this punishment near Ypres for days at a time. On one occasion, Baxter was either deliberately or unintentionally forgotten. It was snowing and he wasn't taken down after the statutory two to three or four hours, and that occasion nearly killed him. He and others suffered these punishments to the end because they believed there was absolutely no argument that could justify industrial-scale slaughter. As Baxter said, I've suffered to the limit of my endurance but I will never in my sane senses surrender to the evil power that has fixed its roots like a cancer on the world. He wrote that in a letter to his, um, to his father uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and mother uh, to let them know that if he uh, was killed, it was through no intention of his own and through no reason of his own. Of all those who were given field punishment, number one, only Baxter and Mark Briggs didn't succumb after a month of such treatment. And in the end, however, after being dragged to the front lines over skin-ripping duckboards, Baxter and Briggs were both mentally and physically damaged, but neither put on the uniform. Baxter was ever generous, however, and said that what he endured was that different from the deprivation of soldiers at the front who were all enduring terrible, terrible horrors. They were all suffering together. The First World War, and indeed all wars, takes an emotional, physical, and spiritual toll on everyone, combatants, non-combatants, civilians, and conscience objectors. In his autobiography, Won't Cease, Baxter acknowledged that he couldn't have survived without the humanity of soldiers who sometimes took care of him and opposed their own chain of command when they disobeyed orders to protect Baxter from further punishment and torture. He has a nice story about when the, when the uh, commander was telling him to dump him on the ground and they lowered him three times uh, so that he didn't break his back. Field punishment number one and being ordered unarmed to the front lines was the culmination of brutality, which began as soon as Baxter was arrested here in Dunedin. It continued in detention centers and prisons around New Zealand and at swing camp in the UK. He and the 13 others who were sent to France were beaten, put in solitary confinement, fed starvation rations, threatened with death on numerous occasions, tortured and humiliated. As one warder said, we don't want your obedience, Baxter, we want your submission. So this memorial peace garden is dedicated to Archibald Baxter, farmer, rabbiter, husband to Millicent, good Kiwi bloke, father to two remarkable sons, James and Terence, a solid down-to-earth man, a pioneer conscience objector and social reformer. He maintained his socialist and pacifist principles to the end of his life and established an extraordinarily high suffering threshold for those who wish to embrace pacifism in the Second World War. As his son Jim said about him in a poem, I've loved you more than my own good because you stand for country pride and gentleness engraved in forehead lines, veins swollen on the hand, also behind slow peach and quiet eye, the rock of passionate integrity. Going to war required bravery, but being a pacifist also required courage in a community focused on the war effort. And it generated its own individual stories of suffering uh, and depression. My mother had a brother, her, her most loved brother, 
who was uh, who was killed in Libya uh, in the Second World War, and her husband was a conscientious objector, and she was the daughter of a Methodist minister. And people in that church said to her, "What did it feel like to be married to a coward while her brother was being killed?" Um, and the tension was too much for her, and she had a mental breakdown. I mean, it doesn't compare to the suffering of somebody on the front lines, but it was suffering. And there were numerous other stories like that. Those who fought for their country and were traumatized by their experiences did so courageously in the face of deprivation, threat, and death. This memorial doesn't detract from their bravery. It's intended to complement the experience of those who thought by focusing on those who chose not to fight. Another speaker, Dunedin Mayor Aaron Hawkins, gave an example of how his support for peace at a recent Anzac commemoration evoked an unexpected response in the mail. This arrived for me in the post, uh, a white feather in an unmarked envelope. And aside from the irony of being accused of cowardice by someone who doesn't leave a return address, uh, I thought it was uh, somewhat poetic, and I finally found a practical use for it uh, in preparing notes on the back of it uh, for the purposes of this uh, engagement. Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson, who said he remembered reading We Shall Not Cease many years ago and being impressed, officially opened the Peace Garden and Monument for the Public. The shifting sands of, of war and peace, conscription and conscientious objection are part of the lives of many New Zealanders. And I want to take a moment now to acknowledge all of the families of conscientious objectors who join us here today. The Baxter family, yes, but all of you who are here today. And I want to take a moment to acknowledge that stigma can stick. And for those families, thank you for your relatives. Thank you for what they did for the cause of peace. And thank you for being here today to support them and acknowledge that cause. As Kevin noted in his editorial, the sacrifice, trauma, courage and loss of those who fight in war is acknowledged across New Zealand and I acknowledge that today as well. But what we do today is to full, give full recognition, finally, to those whose courage also saw them experience trauma and hurt. One of those who joined Archibald Baxter in prison for his anti-conscription views in the First World War was my predecessor as both the MP for Wellington Central and as Deputy Prime Minister, Peter Fraser. Peter Fraser served time in the terrorist jail in Wellington for his anti-conscription views. And then he was the Prime Minister responsible in World War II for conscription. Such is the way in which our histories evolve. I don't offer judgment on that today, but I acknowledge that today is a step forward in our recognition of those who have stood on principle and showed courage to oppose war and who, who suffered terribly for that. Courage comes in many, many forms, as does our history. History is not a single story told in a linear narrative. It's the weaving together of our collective stories and memories, our principles and our passions, but also our contradictions and our compromises. And we have to tell all of our history. One of my very proud moments as a member of this government was our decision that New Zealand's histories will be taught in all schools starting from next year. And as we do that, and as we acknowledge more and more uh, the parts of our histories that we should, such as Matariki, 
Now we must also take this time to acknowledge the different histories and the weaving strands of history of war in New Zealand. This memorial's depiction of field punishment number one is a stark reminder of the suffering of Archibald Baxter and other conscientious objectives. To reiterate what Kevin has already said, it would and indeed should be seen as a gross and inhumane form of state-sponsored torture. We must recognise that today, and for what it is worth on behalf of a government who in some way was part of that in our past, I want to say sorry, I want to say it was wrong, but it is again part of our histories that we must acknowledge, and the beautiful sculpture that we have behind us, Shane, does that. Our commitment to peace and disarmament is now intertwined in our identity. It's part of who we are on the world stage. It's part of standing upright as a New Zealander. We owe Archibald Baxter and his fellow conscientious objectors for setting us off on that path. But each day as a country and as a people, we are challenged. Each day we need to recommit to peace and the cause of peace. Each day we need to do better and more to live up to that aspiration we have as a country, to stand upright, to honour those who were forced to bend but did not break. We have to show their courage. We have to show our support for those who stand upright here now on our earth. You've been listening to Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson and other speakers at the opening of the Peace Garden and Monument to Archibald Baxter on the corner of George and Albany Streets. This is Bill Southworth reporting for Heritage Matters. In the 19th century, it was hoped that the Clutha River might become a major transport link for roadless central Otago. Big as the river was, there were still navigation hazards, as an exploratory expedition soon discovered. This report from Gregor Campbell. The practical navigation of the Clutha River was a dream of the farmers and miners of Otago which was never to be realised, due to the rapids in the river and the rapidity of the river. A pair of adventurers named Pillins and Day, however, made it up as far as Roxburgh in 1891, taking nine days upriver and ten hours back down again. Their story was published in the Clutha Leader under the title A Trip Upriver in a Houseboat. It is now close on 30 years since Messrs Hartley and Riley in a small boat essayed the navigation of the Clutha River as far up as the Dunstan. Their boat was a suitable one and carried six men all told. The voyage took six weeks. Knowing this, it will probably be readily conceded that Messrs W.S. Pillins and H.J. Day of Balclutha undertook a task of no mean magnitude when they started to navigate the river as far as the Teviot, Roxburgh, and the first-named gentleman's houseboat a craft 17 feet long and 5 foot 6 beam. Owing to the size of the house, which contains two comfortable bunks and an extension table between, which can be reduced or enlarged at pleasure, nearly the whole of the boat is taken up and effective rowing is out of the question. The voyagers, therefore, were dependent upon the wind to enable them to sail, and when it failed, there was nothing left but to track by means of a stout rope, the strength of which, by the way, was fully tested during the journey. The following extracts from their log may prove interesting. Saturday, 21st February, 
left Clydevale Station at 10.30am and sailed on to Rongaheri, Rankleburn, about two miles up above Tuapeka Mouth, reaching there at 5pm. A charming little spot, this, just in the bend of the river. Wooded hills coming down on both sides close to the water, the river running silently between. Made fast on a small beach, heard a wildfowl cry during the night, and in the morning picked up a dead petrel lying close to the boat. Quite a number of settlers about Rongaheri, which possesses a public school attended by 25 children. Settlers very anxious to see regular steam communication with Belclutha, in which case they could grow some produce and get it to market. At present, they are destitute of roads. Sunday, 22nd February. Left Rongaheri at 11am with very light wind. Reached Tyson's Sawmill between 2 and 3 miles above Rongaheri at 1.30. Kindly treated by Mrs Tyson and Mr Dunlop. Started after dinner, Mr Dunlop accompanying us as far as the first rapids about two miles further on. Got through them without difficulty, wind having freshened. Second rapids two miles up. Here met with our first mishap. Standing across the river struck a sunken rock heavily, causing the boat to leak badly and brought up shortly afterwards for the night. So far we've sailed all the way, but intend to start tracking in the morning if there be no wind. River from Belclutha to Tyson's Sawmill is good. See nothing to prevent the steamer Matar becoming a regular trader. Tyson's Sawmill should furnish timber cargoes. Mr Tyson very anxious that steamer should run, and we see no reason why she should not. River presents no greater difficulties than it does to Tuapeka Mouth, where the Matar has already been. Monday, 23rd February. Reached the Beaumont today and were comfortably entertained by Mr Nash of the hotel there. The work today has been of a very arduous character, tracking all the way to within a couple of miles of the Beaumont when the river opened out and we were able to sail. The roar of the rapids has been in our ears all day and in many places it was hard work to haul the boat along. We consider that it would be a most hazardous piece of navigation for the Matau. We're told of the wreck of a dredge while being taken down. It struck on a rock and was broken up. Country has opened up somewhat, several small flats with good crops on them, but small area, hills very rugged and bare. Towards Beaumont there is more open country, and we saw some excellent fields of wheat and oats, tired with our day's work. Wednesday, 25th. Got to the Island Block today and were most hospitably entertained by the managing director of the Island Block Company, Mr. Rawlins, CE, and his genial assistants, Messrs. Proust and Green. Much interested in the claim, which has worked day and night in a very complete manner. The water for the claim is taken from the Teller, Fruid, and Minzian creeks at an elevation of 800 feet, and the force at the claim is so great that it spouts stones nearly as big as a man's head and earth up through the jet elevator at the rate of a ton a minute. It is satisfactory to say that Mr Rawlins' skill and enterprise is meeting with the reward it deserves in the shape of splendid gold returns. Before leaving Island Block, we saw the claim in full swing at night by the means of the electric light. No one could imagine the magnitude of the work and the weirdness of the scene from a mere description. The enormous paddock, sunk to a depth of 15 or 20 feet below the bed of the Clutha, made as light as day. The three men working the water directing the nozzles, causing earth and boulders to vanish as if by magic, the men's giant shadows on the walls of the paddock, and the rush and roar of the water through the pipes, must be seen and heard to be appreciated. 
pandemonium is its only parallel. Thursday 26th, left the island block at 9.30am, encountered a succession of rapids and broken water between it and the Minzian burn, where we brought up for the night, having negotiated four miles of the worst water we have yet seen. Thoroughly knocked up. Bad water for about a half a mile. Hands so sore with towing, decided to get help over this bad bit. Friday 27th, engaged Jay McGrath to help track for a mile or two and found him a valuable ally. After going about a mile, the wind sprung up and carried us right on past Dunbarton Rock. Proceeding onwards, we reached the outskirts of Roxburgh Township before dark and our journey terminated. Sunday 28th, spent the forenoon in Roxburgh, inquired vainly for Roxburgh fruit. We were told, ultimately and in confidence, that we could buy Roxburgh fruit cheaper in Dunedin, and we decided to wait till we got there. Before leaving, had a friendly visit from Messrs Whiting, Haynes and Mitchell, two of them old acquaintances, and they remained with us until we cast off on our return journey. We left Teviot at noon, and shortly afterwards hoisted our sail to a fair breeze. Mount Benger, Moa Flat, the Ettrick Burn, and Miller's Flat were passed in quick succession as we raced through the best water of the whole trip. Dredges came in sight and were left behind before we could take a good look at them. Dredging for golds appears to be a thriving industry, judging from the number of dredges at work on the river and others being built. Of the latter, we saw three, two wooden and one iron, in various stages of construction. Coming in sight of the bend above the Minzian, brought to our recollection the troubles of the upward trip as we tore and plunged through the waves, sometimes taking the water in over the bow of the boat. What occupied all our strength and nautical ingenuity for several hours going up was safely passed in a few minutes going down, and before long the charming landscape down the river from the island block was in sight. Very soon, too, we reached the landing, having done in exactly 26 minutes, a distance that took 10 hours two days before. Scrambling up to the house, we found our friend Mr Green. He handed us over to the tender mercies of the Celestial Charlie, who quickly made us a cup of tea and provided other good things. Leaving messages of remembrance for Mr Rawlins and Mr Proist, an hour afterwards saw us again afloat. Passing the dredge moored a short distance above the Teleburn, we sped on, catching a glimpse of Mr and Mrs Stevenson, who had kindly supplied us with milk and eggs going up on their little farm at the mouth of the Teleburn. A wave of a handkerchief, and they were out of sight, and shortly after Kilpatrick's claim was seen. Owing to the number of channels through the rocks at this point, we decided to adopt a line of safety, and lowered the boat through with our tow line, fearing that the current might otherwise take command of us and dash the boat on the rocks. Twenty minutes concluded the job, and saw all hands aboard again and away. Twenty minutes brought us in sight of the Beaumont, with our clever little friend Tatty Fraser standing on the bridge and waving her hand and smiling as we passed through underneath. Goodbye, Tatty, and we were out of hearing. Proceeding onwards, we looked for Mr Elliot, who'd been kind to us going up about his farm, but he was not to be seen. On we went, driving and plunging through the first rapid below the Beaumont, and in it we came to grief, for the boat crashed onto the top of a sunken rock and in an instant we had swung broadside on, with our house almost flat in the water. We had just time to make a grab at our life belts, when a surge came which lifted us off the rock into deep water below, and a strong sweep with the stair oar put us right again. 
and away we went once more. But it was a nasty experience, involving, as it did, the closest shave we had to a struggle for dear life in an extremely uncompromising place. Had it not been for that most opportune surge, the chances were that this voracious account would not have been written. Be that as it may, however, satisfying ourselves that the boat was not seriously injured, fresh dangers soon obliterated the past, and to the inspiriting strains of Our Jacks Come Home Today, we threaded our way through the rocks and rift at racing speed. At Paul's Rocks, we stopped for half an hour to go ashore and pick up two heavy trolley wheels for Messrs Tyson and Dunlop. The wheels on aboard, we started again, with a headwind paddling our way to the sawmill, which we reached at seven o'clock, six hours and a half deducting stoppages from the Teviot. Mr Dunlop was soon with us offering hospitality, and we decided to stay the night. In the morning, we took advantage of the mill crane to hoist the boat out of the water to enable an examination of her injuries to be made. Fortunately, these were light, and she was soon in the water again. Starting with a fair wind, Clydevale was soon reached, just as the good people were going to church. We were sorry to miss seeing Mr and Mrs Mitchell, who were at church, as we wished to renew our thanks for their kindness to us. But a storm was brewing, and we were anxious to get home. Taking the middle channel of Echelfechan, we literally dropped into a plane sailing below and finally reached our destination at half past one, or three hours and a half after leaving Tyson's Mill. And so ends the story of our trip. When asked by our friends whether it was a pleasure trip, we shake our heads but say yes, for truly our minds are filled with many pleasant recollections. The kindness and exuberant hospitality of the dwellers by the waterside must be experienced to be fully appreciated. Anyway, it sunk deeply into our hearts. And perchance when our worthy imitators essay the task of going up the Clutha in a boat, our lately made friends will remember the two men in a strange-looking craft who passed by in March of the year 1891. I have the honour to be the not-very-nautical Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. It's a big week for the Southern Heritage Trust. The 2021 Otipoti Dunedin Heritage Festival begins on Friday the 19th. The festival will showcase Dunedin's rich heritage with special reference to the sustainable use of our precious historic buildings. Symposiums, exhibitions and tours, lectures and games. All over three days of opportunities to immerse ourselves in a living inheritance from our past and a legacy for the future. Bookings will be essential for all activities, and numbers are limited. See the full programme and book through the festival website, southernheritage.org.nz forward slash heritage festival. southernheritage.org.nz forward slash heritage festival. This programme has been generously sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. The Trust works to protect the city's heritage, particularly its fine old buildings and all the things that make Dunedin New Zealand's heritage capital. The Trust welcomes new members. It can be contacted at southernheritage.org.nz. That's southernheritage, all one word, .org.nz.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.